0: In the thought of how God's word is kind of used and twisted in strange ways, I was thinking the other day, so here's what couples ought to do today when they want to name their kid a new name. They should open their Bible to Matthew chapter 1, which is where the genealogy is. So i got mine open here, and I'm going to close my eyes, and I'm going to run my finger down the genealogy. So my child's name is going to be Jotham. What do you think? Is it a great name? You like it? Okay. It's not bad. Let's get another one. Let's get a really bad one. (laughs) Uh, Manasseh. I don't like that one. It's kind of Manasseh. Can you imagine naming your kid Manasseh? Uh, Anyway, Uh, twisted ways we use God's word or or we find proof texts. Uh, Dennis' favorite one always was Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Verse number 19. Now, Ecclesiastes is a weird book, and it's, it's a tongue-in-cheek kind of book in the Bible. It's full of sarcasm and satire. And at one point it says this, that money answers everything. And Dennis used to say, it's biblical, it's right there. It's Ecclesiastes, money answers everything. We use God's word in strange ways. You know, we've got a little proof text or we do the you know, naming our babies, or we go, oh, oh, we grab our Bible and we go, oh, I need a blessing, and give me something, Lord, flop it open, and then, oh, okay. Well, it's going to flop open to Psalms, because Psalms is big and it's in the middle. And so it's bite-sized, you know, and, and, and we read, you know, three verses out of a Psalm and we're good to go. Well, the book of Galatians cannot be read that way. It cannot be thought of that way. In fact, most of the Bible cannot. It's, it, you need to think of it more like like, like um, those toys that you used to pop together. You remember they were plastic and you popped them and you popped them and you made long strings? That's how God's word is. It pops together. There's something over here, there's something over here, there's something over here. There's a history book, there's a poetry book, there's a narrative, there's a story, there's some singing, there's a song, there's a po- poem. And it all pops together to make an unbelievable mosaic. But you, but you have to spend a little time to understand how that one connects to that one. If you just grab the, one you, the first one you see and, and try to make sense of it, yeah, you can get a blessing out of it. You know, if you're trying to decide, are we, are we going to move uh, you know, to the East Coast? And you're running along with your finger in the Old Testament, and it says, and Abraham went east. Oh, see, we're supposed to move. There it is. Well, that is not how God's word is supposed to be understood. And Galatians does take a little bit of effort. So let's look at Galatians 1 and and read verses 6 to 10 to begin with. And let's see if we can keep going with our study. It says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you let him be accursed as we have said before so now i say again if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received let him be accursed for i am now for am i now seeking the approval of a man or of god or am i trying to please man if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now, last week we gave you some background on who who Paul is and when he wrote it and to whom he wrote it. But today I want you to see that he's got some concerns. He's got some issues with the the churches in Galatia. He's got some real heartfelt concerns about what's happening. And and on the top of your notes, I, I wrote a couple of them down. In verse six he says, Are you deserting the one that called you? Are you turning to another gospel? Verse 7 says, have you you been thrown in confusion? Are you perverting the gospel? Verse 8, if if you are preaching another gospel, be cursed. And then in in chapter 4, he kind of sums it up with this question. Are you aware of what the law says? See, the, the underlying problem for the churches in Galatia was, while they had come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ because he had been preached clearly and plainly, there were others that were showing up, beginning to say to them, yeah, you do, you do have a salvation experience by coming in faith to Jesus, but, but let's not forget the good of the law. Let's make sure that we're circumcised as an example. Let's make sure we're keeping festivals and feast days. Let's make sure we're eating the right stuff and not eating the stuff that was not available for us. Suppose looking at them with his head kind of cocked, saying, are you even really aware of what the law says? So I'm going to look at you with my head half cocked and say, ladies, are you aware of what the law says? And I want to spend a little time helping you with that, in case that, you, you didn't have that ready answer for what really is encompassed when we use the term, the law. And one way to do it is to talk about God's relationship with men and women. Where did it start? What was his original idea? I used to have a secretary, she was a terrific gal. Quick story about me, so I hired her and I'm a little fastidious and a little structured and a little OCD, (laughs) a lot of that, and so, I I had this habit of coming up to my assistant's desk and adjusting it for her. You know, <laughs> moving this over here and moving that over there and making a little straight line here and you know, all the things in the cup and, and and Belle, her name was Belle, she did not work that way. And one day I was over making these subtle little adjustments and she slapped my hand. <laughs> and she said this is my work area. If you have a criticism about the way I support you, please feel free to you know, share it with me. But don't touch my stuff. <laughs> that was Belle. She was a pastor's wife. And uh, she used to say, Belle used to say, everything you need to know about God, you can find in the book of Genesis. And when she taught, as a pastor's wife, she taught the book of Genesis over and over and over again. They were going to have a Bible study. They studied the book of Genesis. And for years I used to make fun of her, but I'm beginning to think she's a brilliant woman. Because if we want to talk about how God relates to us, we have to back up. You've got to back up. You've got to keep going back further, further, further. And, and ask yourself the question, what was his original idea? How did God intend to re- react to or relate to or have relationship with men and women? And you go to the first three books of the book of Genesis. And, and I'm encouraging you to do that this afternoon. Read Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And you'll see the story. And the story will unfold about how God intended to relate to men and women. His intention was, was built on a desire to have a relationship. And if you want to know what heaven's going to be like, Christians are always so excited about it studying eschatology. Remember a few years ago, you talked me into teaching Revelation. And you were just so excited. We're going to understand the book of Revelation. You know what? You cannot understand the book of Revelation without understanding Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Because heaven's going to be an awful lot like the garden. See, the garden was God's idea. It was perfect. He created man. Man was absolutely perfect. No no issues, no, no weaknesses, no sick. Sicknesses, no illnesses, no imperfections, no sin, no inclination to sin. There was such innocence they ran around without any clothes on. He provided for them a perfect environment that was beautiful. Pick the most beautiful scene that you have in your mind and multiply it by a million and, and come up with 10,000 of those scenes. My, mine are all in the mountains. Yours might be on the beach. But, but, but those scenes were replicated over and over in the garden. They could eat anything they wanted. Never having to count, you know, calories or carbs or whatever, <laughs> points. He only gave them one instruction don't eat this particular fruit. He came in the evening and had face to face, personal conversations with them. You want to know what heaven's going to be like? Think about that garden. And he put them to work. He said, There's work to be done here, work is a good thing. Lots of times people think work is part of the curse. No. There was great work before the curse. Once the curse came, work didn't produce what it should have. But God had work. I like to work. I feel productive when I'm active and doing things. God knew that. And so he gave productive work. They were to tend the garden. They had, work. They had to name animals. They had to, they had to get the, the, the species and, and all that stuff straightened out. They had a garden to actually tend. And all they had to do was not eat one stinking something. Personally, I think it was a kumquat, but I don't know. (laughs) God wanted to relate to man. That was his plan. Now, what happened was, once the the choice was made to eat, to disobey, once the way way he wanted to relate to them was broken, then God went to plan B and plan C and plan D and plan E, and eventually got to the new plan. So I, I'm asking you to back up for a moment so we can understand why Paul's having such a cow fit that they're, they're wanting to get back into the law. He's asking the question, are you really aware of how this thing works? Now, I want to try to help you with that. I got a little video, since most of you grew up learning from videos, and... Uh, <laughs> This is a great little website, by the way. Those of you that have children, it is a perfect website. It is called if you've the been Bible Project. You
1: probably know the idea of having a personal relationship with God, which could mean different things in the Bible, like having God as a friend or your father or maybe your teacher. But there's one particular way that the Bible talks about this relationship that you find all over. But strangely, we don't talk about it that much, and that's the idea of a partnership with God—a partnership like. Working alongside someone to accomplish a goal together. Right, and this is actually what you see at the beginning of the Bible. God creates this good world full of all of this potential. And then God appoints these unique creatures, humans, as his partners
0: in bringing more and more goodness out of all that potential. But
1: the humans don't want to partner with God. They rebel and try to create a world on their own terms. And so this broken partnership is the Bible's explanation for why we're stuck in a world of corruption and injustice and the tragedy of death. It's not like there's just one or two humans who have failed on this relationship. In the story of the Bible, everyone has abandoned the partnership with God. So what God does is select a smaller group of people out of the many, and he makes a new partnership with them called a covenant. And in the covenant... God makes promises, and then in exchange asks his partner to fulfill certain commitments. And the purpose of all of this is to somehow use this covenant relationship to renew his partnership with everybody else. Now, there are actually four times in the Old Testament that we're told God initiates a covenant relationship with Noah, Abraham, the nation of Israel, and King David. And it's through these that God is forming a covenant family into which all people will eventually be invited. So let's see how these work. The first one is with Noah. So in this story, God has just brought the flood to cleanse the world of humanity's corruption. And Noah and his family are the only ones left. And so God makes a covenant with Noah, saying, listen, I know that humans will continue to be evil, but despite that, I'm not going to destroy it like this again. Instead... The earth will be this reliable place for us to work together. Great. So what does Noah have to do? Nothing. And that's what's so interesting about this first covenant, is that God is promising to be faithful, even though he knows humans won't be. The next time we see God make a covenant is with a man named Abraham. God chooses him, promises to bless him, give him a large family, lots of land where they can flourish. And in return, God asks Abraham to trust him and train up his family to do what is right and just. And the whole reason for this covenant is God says that somehow he's going to bring his blessing to all families of the world through this one family. So that's Abraham. The next time we see God make a covenant is when Abraham's family grows into the tribe of Israel. And this covenant is with the whole tribe. God asks them to obey a set of laws, which are these guidelines for living well as a community of God's partners. And if they do this, then God promises to bless them and that they will become a people who then represent him to the rest of humanity. That's the covenant with Israel. The last covenant is with King David. Yeah, the tribe of Israel has become this large nation ruled by David. And God asks David and his descendants to partner with him by leading Israel in obeying the laws and doing what is right and just. And God promises that one day... One of David's sons will come and extend God's kingdom of peace and blessing over all the nations. So, those are the four covenants that God makes in order to restore his partnership with the whole world. But here's what happens Israel breaks the covenant. They worship other gods, they allow horrible injustice, and so they lose their land and are forced off into exile. So, it seems hopeless. But during this time, Israel's prophets talked about a day when God would restore these covenants in spite of Israel's failure somehow. Yeah, they called it the new covenant. And this is actually what's so interesting about Jesus, is that he's introduced into this story as the one who fulfills all of these covenant relationships. We're told that he's from the family of Abraham, and so he will bring the blessings of that family to the whole world. We're told that he's the faithful Israelite who is able to truly obey the law. And we're told that he's the king from the line of David, and so he goes about extending God's kingdom of justice and peace to all that's really remarkable for one guy. Yeah, and what it highlights is perhaps the most surprising claim of all made about this man, that Jesus is no mere human, but rather God become human. And God did this in order to be that faithful covenant partner that we are all made to be, but have failed to be. And so through Jesus, God has opened up a way for anyone to be in a renewed partnership with him. So Jesus calls people to follow him and become part of this new covenant family. And despite their failures, Jesus is committed to making them into partners who are becoming more and more faithful. The story of the Bible ends with a vision of a fully renewed world, full of goodness and peace. And there's this renewed humanity there, partnering together with God to expand the goodness of his creation. And so the end of the Bible story is really a new beginning. Hey, this is Tim, and
0: this is John. We think one of the best ways... Hi, Tim and John. We like you, but we're done with you. (laughs) By the way, the Bible uh, Project... uh, Heather, will you turn that off? Do you know how to do it? The little black thing? um, The Bible Project is really helpful for getting big concepts in in short. They have videos on everything. Not everything, but an awful lot of stuff in the Bible. Now, the reason I wanted to share that is I ask you to... To to answer the question, or we're trying to answer the question, are you aware of what the law says? So i got to start way back in the garden, and the place to start is is with the concept that God made covenants. God made partnerships. God made uh, relationships. And they started in the garden. And so depending on who the scholar is, they're going to divide up the covenants differently. He had four in the video. I think I've got uh, five, maybe six. So starting with the, the, what we call the uh, Adamic, and, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on this and don't wig out going, oh my gosh, are we in seminary now? We are not. But, but he started with his promises associated with his relationship with Adam. And the idea was, you know, you can do all these things, just don't do that. And, and I'm going to bless you. And, and it was all on God. It, it, it was on God to, to maintain all of that. One little condition, you, you have to be obedient. And what happened? They weren't. So the relationship was broken. Then, then we go through our Bible. We're, we're still in Genesis. Thank you, Belle. We're now in Genesis uh, 6, I think. And we're or, or moving up to 9. Where we get, We're going to get to Noah. And now there's a new covenant. Another, another covenant. I shouldn't say new. A, another covenant. This one we call it the Noahic. But it's a covenant with Noah. And it was the idea that, that I'm no longer going to do this again. I will establish my covenant with you that never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. That was, that was a promise. Um, and he gave him a sign. And the sign was a rainbow. You and I, every time we see a rainbow, ought to, ought to process, ooh, God wants to have a relationship with man. That's why that sign's up there. Then, then after Noah, we move continuing through the book of Genesis. We get to chapter 12, and then the key chapters of chapter 15 and, and following. And now there's a covenant initiated with Abraham. Um, God made a promise to Abraham that out of his offspring... That that there would be so many of them, they would be like stars in in the sky, and and the benefit was that through Abraham, because they were his descendants, these people were going to have a land, an actual place where God wanted to to be with them, and, and and it was a it was a promise between God and humanity through the person of Abraham, and and God self imposed his own obligation on himself to bless Abraham. Um, and, and and i'm going to i'm going to take that particular thing apart in, in another week but it was it, it's a fabulous story about how he he showed the the covenant relationship and who it, who it depended on it depended entirely on god and then again he keeps rolling through uh time and and it gets to moses and now in moses the story picks up in the book of uh, Of the book of Exodus and beyond and it's between God now and this people group Abraham's family have become an actual nation a chosen nation and you ask yourself the question well why did he choose the Jews? he chose the Jews because he wanted to he wanted a sample he wanted to be able to display his glory it was all about him they didn't earn it there was nothing special about them I gave you the passage in Deuteronomy 7 you can go look at it The reason he chose them, he specifically says, it's not because you were in larger number. It's not because you are a great nation. It's not because you have any specialness. I wanted to be able to show how I want to relate to people with you being my example. And so he chose the people. And and, and it was conditional on their being faithful. God promised to bless if they were faithful. And the sign wasn't the rainbow. Now the sign and circumcision was the sign through Abraham the sign now is they, they would keep the law. They would keep specifically the Sabbath, and people around them good looking go. Oh yeah, they keep the Sabbath. Oh, they must be Jews. Oh yeah, they're in a special relationship with Yahweh. So we keep coming down through history, and we're gonna we're gonna move from Moses now to David, and the covenant we we call that one the divinic covenant, and and that one is based on the fact that he is the king. He represents royalty. He is the one who is going to rule and reign. Over the tribe of Judah, one of one of the sons of Israel, and and the and the covenant relationship is now between God and David's lineage, and it specifically was 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 the the benefit of that was God gave them a place where He would show up and they could show up and they could worship Him, because until that time. There wasn't a place to go to. It wasn't until the tabernacle and the details in the book of Exodus, out of the law, did they have have accoutrements and ways and a place to go meet with God. And suddenly the tabernacle, over a period of time, moves into being a permanent temple. And through the covenant with David that's conditional on God's faithfulness, certainly David and the nation of Israel were not. God's moving forward with this plan to have a relationship with mankind. And then we get to what we call the new covenant that's established and initiated by Christ himself. And and in in Jeremiah 31, the the prophet Jeremiah prophesies God's going to give you a new heart. And we start to see a concept developing in the Old Testament. Those things are popping together. So we started with... A relationship with the, the Adam and Eve and, and Adam and the whole idea of God wanting to, to relate to them and setting up the garden. That was his ideal. That's the way it was supposed to be. If you just sit and think about that a little bit today, that will make you long for heaven. That's what we were supposed to have. But we blew it. And, and, and we can blame it all on Eve and Adam, of course. But the truth of the matter is is I've, I've, I've participated in that, in that breaking of God's, God's rules and God's commands myself and so have you. But the way it was intended to be, he set up a, a standard, a way, a template of relating to man and then he re- reiterates it down through the ages. He, he does so to Noah and he does so again to Abraham and he does so to, to Moses and he does so to David and then comes Christ himself. And the prophets knew that and when Jesus came on the scene, even when he was establishing the night before he died, what we, you and I call the, the Last Supper, and, and we use it as a template for, for taking communion together, he uses the phrase, I, I, I'm establishing a new covenant, a new way to relate to man. Not, not through the ways that, that were established in those covenants that we just reviewed, but in a new covenant, a new established. I'm going to make the old covenant obsolete, Hebrews 8 says. I, I'm, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do away with mediation. The, instead of the blood having to be shed repetitively because of the, uh, of the offerings, the, the Hebrews uh, in, in uh, chapter 9 says his, that Jesus' blood was shed once for all. It doesn't have to be repeated. Blood sacrifices all the time. Now, the, the new covenant was conditional on something as well. And, and, and right out of 1 Corinthians 15 there's a phrase that says it's conditional on the last Adam's obedience. And who do you think the last Adam is? Jesus Christ. So on his be- obedience to go to the cross on our behalf on, on, the, on, the, on the basis of what he did for us there is now a new way for man to relate and to have a relationship with Almighty God. That there, is a, there is a plan there is a rhythm, and what's coming is the restored innocence that was found in the garden. There's, there's, a, there's a rhythm. In fact, when I teach this, I do this. I, I realized this the other day. This is me saying, it's moving. It's coming. There is a climax. I'm, I'm a participant. There's a, there's a drum beating, and it's getting louder, and it's getting louder, and it's coming. And what's going to come is on the basis of the new covenant, you and I are going to have the blessings of being in the presence of God much like Adam and Eve had before it got messed up. The climax of all the covenants, the climax of all the promises of the kinds of way God, ways God wanted to bless them, the climax of all that is the day Jesus died on the cross, suffered for me and for you, could have got down and did not. Colossians talks about the record that, 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 that he hid. He could have come down off the cross, but if he had come down, then all of my stuff would have been exposed. And instead he wanted it covered. He stayed on the cross and offered himself for me. And so now I can have the benefit of the new covenant and a relationship with God on the basis of faith. Now if you can't say hallelujah to that, you're <laughs> useless. The point is, is Paul is saying, knowing all of that, knowing that that's what God has done, this drumbeat moving, 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 moving to the climax of his resurrection on a Sunday morning. Why? Why would you want to go back and start living under those other constraints? So when he asks the question, are you aware of what the law is? If you are, you're a fool, Paul would say, for wanting to go back. Now, just to complete the picture in your mind of what the law really is, is like, it's not limited to the Ten Commandments. Sometimes people will say, well, what is the law? Well, it's the Ten Commandments. Yes, the Ten Commandments form a portion of the law. But I put it in your notes. The law really consists of three elements, three parts to it. One is the ceremonial law. that That had to do with the way that they could worship Yahweh. So... So in Leviticus, uh, in the first chapter, it talks about, you know, that would they worship him so that a person could be accepted before the law, before God and before the law. It was a, it was a way of externally showing worship. So the ceremonial law, how how they were to worship. Then there was the civil law, how they were supposed to behave, the daily parts of life. So if you go to uh, Deuteronomy twenty four, it talks about how do you get married. How do you have loans? What do you do when you're sick? All the stuff having to do with daily life. So the ceremonial parts that has to do with with uh, the worship of Yahweh. The civil law has to do with how do you how do you operate? You know what what happens when someone gets uh, an illness? And the one that uses an illustration very often is lepros- leprosy in the Old Testament. So there's lots of rules about what do you do when somebody you find out somebody has leprosy? And 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 really all they are are rules that you and I would use when one kid gets the flu and the other one hasn't gotten it yet. You know, you separate them. You, you don't let them breathe on each other. You, don't, you watch the whatevers. You, you know, make sure they're getting good stuff to eat. There, there are rules, though, associated with it, and, and that's part of the law, the civil law. Then the third element of the law is the moral laws, and that's the part we normally think about, the direct commands. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't cheat. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. Don't covet your neighbor's stuff. Honor your mom and dad. Those are the moral laws. And they show up in two places, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. Everything in Deuteronomy is Moses going, wait, 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 wait. I'm about to die. I've got to tell you everything. Let me Wait, 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 wait. wait. Did you remember? In fact, you should read the book of Deuteronomy with hearing Moses go, wait, 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 wait. I want to make sure you got it. And he repeats again in Deuteronomy 5 the, the ten laws and all the other things associated with the ceremonial law and the civil law. So again, Paul's question is, are you aware of what the law says? Yeah, we took a look. We, look at, we took a look at, at how through his covenants he wanted to relate and we've taken a quick snapshot of what the law you know, entails, the scope or the, uh, the, 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 the kinds of things that are included. So now he gives us an illustration in the book of Galatians. Look at chapter 4. He says, all right, I I think you're getting it, but but let me give you a story, because everybody as a human being relates best to stories. Let me give you the story of, of Hagar and Sarah. So I put in your notes that this is a story from Genesis 16 and Genesis 17. And it's a story, by the way, that is used for all kinds of things. Um, the Arab and Israeli conflict people will quote from the story of Sarah and Hagar today in today's newspaper I'll bet you that I could go find uh, a newspaper somewhere that's making a reference to that story in Genesis 16 and 17 it's, that story is used um, by those that are, that are wanting to make certain that the, the classes are not being oppressed go to that story um, uh, surrogate mothers go to that story um, and, and lots and lots of people that are trying to sort out race conflicts will go to that story have I enticed you in the story yet? okay it's the story, story of Hagar and Sarah so if you're in chapter 4 let, let me uh, start with uh, let's see verse number hmm, uh, 21 tell me you who desire to be under the law do you not listen to the law? So early, earlier he said, Hey, are you not aware? Now he's saying, Are you a, such a dummy you don't actually listen to what's there? For it was written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Now, before you get all excited about, you know, isn't this terrible getting, you know, uh, cast out and so on, you need to know the story. Abraham is old. He's been promised that he is going to be the head of a very large family, ultimately more than the stars of the, in the sky. And he can't create children. He's old. And he's getting older by the moment. And in his panic, he went to what was a very acceptable option because his wife could not conceive she's as old as he is. He goes to a younger version and he finds a handmaid, a servant, a slave who's, who's you know, in, the, in the household and he impregnates her. She has a son. His son is Ishmael. God goes, really? I thought I had a plan. Thought I gave you a promise. Thought I said I was going to do something different. The fact that you're old and cannot physiologically produce an heir, what am I? Chopped liver? I have a plan. And lo and behold, Sarah, his wife, can and has a child. And his name is Isaac. Now we have the story of Isaac and Ishmael. And as, as the handmaid is there in the house with her son, Sarah's not liking it. He's getting a lot of attention. He, you know, he's getting treated as the numero uno son. And at one point she says, he's got to go. He's got to go. Get him out of here. Throws him out. And an angel shows up and cares for him and, and Abraham is told, let him back in the house. I have a future in mind for him and his descendants. But in the meantime, there is a the son of the promise. And that's Isaac. This story of, of, of Hagar and Sarah and their children is an illustration of exactly what we've been looking at by looking at the covenants or by looking at the... The definition of the law. He just now does it in a, in a story form. So who do you want to be? The, the son of a servant that ultimately is cast out because he doesn't belong? Or do you want to wait for the promise and the gift of God that's coming through the lineage of the promised son? What do you want? You want to go back to being the kid of a slave? What does that make you? A slave. Or do you want to be the child of the free woman, the one that's going to get all the blessings and the inheritance of the father? You want to go back and be a slave? Or do you want to enjoy the blessings of God? That's the essence of the argument that Paul is developing in the book of Galatians. Now, having studied that and thought about it, I came up with my my classic question I ask every week, so what? All right, great, check the box. I wanna go with, with Sarah and, and Isaac. Jack. I don't wanna be under the law. I don't wanna I've already told you stories about how I would have, would have made a horrible person under the law. I would have been so neurotic it's not funny. It w- it would have been awful. So we check the box. Yep, yeah, uh free. Yeah. Mm, new 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 covenant, like that one. Yep. I don't like the Divinic. I really wanna be on the Abrahamic down to the Noah New, new covenant, check. But what does that mean in a daily, regular part of walking and talking and living the life that you and I live? Well, the, the, real, the real crux is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and I put it right there on your notes. Here's what it says. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful. But not all things build up. I am a child of the promise, and I choose it. I am not wanting to go back and live under the law. I don't want to be the slave woman's daughter. But in my freedom that I have in Christ, I have to be careful. With liberty comes responsibility. We talk about that in the context of of citizenship. My friend Bard, who isn't here this morning... Uh, she she had to go to jury duty the other day. And she was really not looking for it. It was in Superior Court and she'd heard stories about it but you know being stuck for six weeks and it was downtown Santa Ana and she didn't know where to park and oh it's just becoming this gigantic issue. And so I said to her, you know what? It really is the price tag for your freedom. That's how you should look at it. The the, the, the the freedoms that you have as an American citizen, the one little price tag we ask is that once every I don't know how many years you show up at a courthouse and you volunteer to be bored to death until they get they choose you and you and you serve on a jury. It, it's kind of the responsibility of citizenship. Well when we think about the freedom that we have as believers, I do not have to show up and offer sacrifices. I am not bound to eat this and not eat that. I am not bound to wear this and not not, not that. I am not required to have a hat on my head, unless it's a ball cap. I, I am not constrained by the definitions of some of the laws. Those so 613 we talked about last week. But, but, The constraint on me, the maturity in me as a believer, suggests that while all things are lawful, I ought to be careful with my liberty. So if you're having a party at your house, and it's spaghetti, and it's appropriate to have some red wine, is there anything in the world wrong with a New Testament, God-fearing woman such as you and I to offer some sort of red wine, I don't drink wine, gives me a horrible headache, but some sort of red wine. No! But, but, Dennis Bach, man that many of you know, was raised in a tradition in the church where alcohol was not a part at all. And if you invited him to your home and offered a glass of wine with spaghetti, it would have been an offense to him. It was like, hmm, Made him uncomfortable. So according to 1 Corinthians 10, do you serve wine when Dennis comes for spaghetti and meatballs? Answer, no. You say, well, wait a minute, all the rest of us who would have enjoyed a glass of wine, we have to say no, thank you, because poor Dennis is, you know, stuck in the 40s. (laughs) (laughs) He wasn't even born then, but. (laughs) You want to know what the answer to that is? Yeah. Yeah. You reign in your liberty so as to not offend. You don't, you don't take your liberty to the ex- farthest extent and rub somebody's nose in it. In fact, we're going to see where, where Paul gets after, gets after uh, Peter because you know he's, he's, he's playing games with his liberty. He wants to make sure that we understand one of the takeaways from all of this is is another verse in that same chapter, in first, chapter ten of First Corinthians, and it's a summary on the next page in your notes. It says, "So, so you got all this liberty. So you need to be careful about your responsibilities under that liberty. So, whether you eat or you drink, whatever you do, you do all to the glory of God. You give no offense to Jews or to Gentiles." or to the Church of God. The summary for the New Testament, the takeaway for you and I, is to say to ourselves, whatever we do, offering spaghetti to our friends, going to a a form of entertainment, uh, choosing to, to speak a certain way, clothing ourselves, participating in any activity that might be a part of our culture, whatever it is, we do so from the motive of not, oh, is that in the law? Was that one of the 613? Don't touch. No. Our motive is, is my participation in this going to further the glory of God? And if the answer to that is, yeah, go for it. If the answer to that is, well, I don't know, then don't. You know, Do you go see R rated movies? Rarely. And if it is rated R, the one that I'll probably go see is the one that has the shoot 'em up, bang, bang stuff. (laughs) Sorry. It's true. Sorry. My life is not ruled by an R or a P or a G or a 13. I got freedom in Christ when I go to one of those movies, and they use that word over and over and over again, I come out feeling like I need a bath. Okay. And it penetrates my soul. So I avoid them. I just avoid them. I don't always make the right choice, and I'm certainly not putting myself up as an example. But I'm trying to give you real-life illustrations. Make choices, whether you eat or whether you drink. Whatever it is you're eating or drinking. Or whatever you do, choose to make it for the glory of God. That's the life that God wants us to have under the new covenant. That's the freedom of being Sarah's kid rather than Hagar's kid. But it comes with a requirement for some discernment. When you're around a weaker brother, if somebody went through a a, a dependence on, let's, let's say, alcohol, and you invite them to your house... You have freedom to drink whatever you want to drink. But you would be an idiot to have any form visible for your friend because you cared about them far more than you did the taste of something that you were sipping out of a glass. Likewise, other choices we would make. We don't want to sit and gossip because it might cause somebody to stumble. We don't want to use certain words my, my, I'm, on a, I'm on a kick for the, the word fricking. Or any, or any form thereof. Yes. Excuse me! You know the term euphemism? That's a euphemism. I don't want to hear it. I, 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 I need help in my walk. You can help me by not saying that. <laughs> I, I need help. I need to be thinking about things that are productive and positive. I don't need to be thinking about themes that are, that are, that are going to drag me down. I don't, I don't need to be caught up in your gossip and your story or mine that I might want to share with you. You get my point? So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. We're going to give no offense, not to the Jews, not to the Gentiles, not to the church. We're going to live our life in a way that recognizes we're under the new covenant, but doesn't, but doesn't flounder in it. <coughs> Let's pray, Father. Thank you. There is so much in this book, so much to apply, so many connections to make. But ultimately, what it boils down to, Lord, is you still want to connect with man. You created me in my mom's tummy, and invited me to know you, to relate to you. To have conversations with you. To lean on you. To depend on you. To seek your face. To want to be with you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you that I was born under the new covenant. pray this in Jesus' name.
1: Amen. Amen.